Hello and welcome to the Polemical History Podcast, where we discuss history that borders on taboo. This is Tim Rudy. And this is Anthony Blackwell. And today we're talking about denazification, the process of bringing the leaders of the Nationalist Socialist regime in Germany to justice and of purging all elements of Nazism from public life carried out between 1945 and 1951. With us today to discuss denazification is our polemical sister, Vera. Hi, everyone. Hey, Vera. Welcome, Vera. Thanks for joining us. So, Vera, you're Thanks a, for having me. No, you're very welcome. Uh, so, you're a fan of history. Uh, have you always liked history since you were little? Uh, yes, ever since I was a teenager, I've, I've really enjoyed um, reading history books and, and studying history. Me too, yeah. I think uh, my fascination with history actually came with the Roman Empire. When I was little, I was really fascinated. I thought the Roman Empire was just like the coolest thing ever. How about you, Anthony? Uh, for me, it was uh, the United Irishman. At the end of the uh, 18th century, uh, I was fascinated by a, a character called Wolftone, Theobald Wolftone, who uh, was eventually uh, killed by the British. How did he die? Um, Cannonball to the face? No, he was, he, he was due to be hung, but um, I believe... If my uh, childhood fascination, uh, you know, serves you well, serves me well. I think I think he killed himself um, in prison. Uh, yeah, in, in Dublin. Yeah. Pretty anticlimactic, I guess. <laughs> what about you, Vera? I'm more interested in the the recent stuff, so uh, contemporary history, anything after the French Revolution, how we got to our societies of today. Great. So uh, denazification will be in your like remit. Exactly. Um, shall we kick this off at like uh, an open question? Why, why do you think people are, are shocked or surprised to learn that there were former Nazis involved in post-war governments and, and institutions? Well, that's because we're the good guys and they're the bad guys, right? <laughs> what do you think, Vera? Well, I think it's because our uh, post-war societies are presented to them like that. You know, new democracies in Germany, Italy, former fascist Nazi states, uh, uh, European Union of peace and democracy as well. So this is also, it's what they're told, you know, that um, a new world was built internationally, nationally, in many European countries after, uh, after World War II. And um, so it's difficult for them, for them to imagine that, well, you know, they didn't completely start again at zero, there was no hour zero, and there were some continuities. Yeah, I, I think people have a, have a blind spot. Whenever I, I mentioned to friends that we were going to treat the subject today, um, they, they said to me, yeah, it's crazy. You know, when, when you think about Nazis, when you think about World War II, um, you don't think beyond 1945. I mean, but of course there had to be some, some con continuity. Not every member of the Nazi party or every German just disappeared um, as if uh, Thanos just uh, clicked his finger, you know? Yeah, what are maybe the most prominent Nazis that you found uh, in your research? Like, can you give a quick list of names there? Um, yeah, I'd, the, well, I don't really want to make the focus of today's episode um, on individuals, but, you know, there were a number of controversies um, about, uh, you know, post-war presidents uh, of West Germany or, 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 or even re reunified Germany or Austria or in the United Nations. But the controversies... Uh, we're, we're mainly from the 60s to the, to the 90s. It doesn't seem to be too, quote-unquote, polemical today, but perhaps this is sort of like a, uh, you know, a, a past polemical history podcast, something that was controversial uh, perhaps three decades ago. Um, I do have a number of individuals that I'd like to raise, um, but I think I'll save them for, for a little while. Okay. The, the ones that immediately come to mind, um, well, as an American, first and foremost, is Werner von Braun. 
but I have been, I'm a regular listener of the BBC World, um, World Service. It's like a daily news podcast um, from the BBC. And you do hear from time to time, uh, every so often, there will be a, a very, very old German citizen uh, being tried for war crimes, even, even today, very recently, even as, or as recently as a few years ago. Um, and, you know, it kind of sounds almost strange to prosecute someone for something they did, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Oh, I guess now we're talking at least 70 years ago, right? Mm. Um, but I mean, better late than never, I guess. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I was going to ask you a similar question. Like, why does it continue to make the news when a Nazi skeleton is revealed to be in like a public figure's closet? Um, especially today when you say they're, they're, they're so, so old. And we, and we um, I mean, it, it can't come as a surprise anymore to us. You know, we're aware of these individuals who were exposed, you know, post-war. I mean, it's, 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 it's natural that there, there would be skeletons in, in closets. Does it even make the news anymore? I, yeah, not, not very often, that's for sure. Not as much as it used to, I'm sure. Yeah. The trials do, but I think it's more about, you know, of course, I think that was the, the last, that was um, a guy in Germany about almost 100 years old now, uh, very recently, um, that is being, well, put in front of... Uh, in front of judges, but it's more about, you know, saying what you did is wrong. Of course, the guy is not going to go to prison. You're not actually going to punish them now that they're that old and that much time after it. But it's about publicly saying, look, even 75 years after what happened, it is not okay, and you will be condemned for it. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I mean, imagine, you know, it might your gut instinct might be like, gosh, that guy's so old. He's, he can barely walk. He can barely even speak anymore. He can't feed himself. But if you are the descendants or the family members of that person's victims, you know, you bet your ass you want him to be punished in some way. For me, what's fascinating about denazification and one of the reasons why I wanted to speak about it today was that the questions that the, um, you know, that the allied occupying powers and that I suppose the, the Germans themselves had to ask are still relevant today. Like, how can a society confront its past? Um, how can it come to terms with it? Uh, how can they develop a peaceful coexistence? Uh, for all involved, and uh, establish democracy, and can all this be forced upon them, um, or even initiated from the outside, or does it, has to come, does it have to come from within? I think these questions are really interesting. Uh, so the term denazification was first coined as a legal term in 1943 by the U.S. military, and it was intended to be applied in a narrow sense uh, with reference to the post-war German legal system. Uh, however, it took on a general meaning after the Second World War, and it was solidified by the Potsdam Agreement in August 1945. It comprised one of the four Ds that were, were, were talked about at the Potsdam uh, Conference. Okay, so denazification. The other three were demilitarization, democratization, and decentralization. So these were the issues that they, that, they, that they wished to discuss. As an attempt to rid German and Austrian society, culture, press, economy, judiciary, and politics of the Nazi ideology. Um, it was carried out by identifying and removing those who had been Nazi Party or SS members uh, from positions of power and influence, as well as disbanding or rendering impotent the organizations associated with Nazism. The term denazification also refers to the removal of the physical symbols, which is interesting, of the Nazi regime, such as the swastika, or the croix gammée, I think it's like they call it here in France. Uh, but our focus today is obviously going to be particularly more so on the individuals and less on the material culture, I would say. Great. All right. So, okay. So in today's discussion, as I said, we're not going to focus so much on the 
key leaders of uh, the German National Socialist Movement either, so the types of individuals that comprise Hitler's inner circle, uh, the committed Nazi ideologues such as Goebbels, Himmler, Heydrich, Hess, Eichmann, Goring, you know, those kind of uh, the evil villains of, of, um, of, of, of the Nazi movement, um, who would have constituted like major offenders in, in, the, in the levels of political incrimination that the Allies decided to um, sort the German population into. Rather, we're going to discuss the more prosaic Nazi, if you can be forgiven for using uh, such a, a term in relation to um, the Nazis. Uh, so the Nazi every man or woman who existed in their multitudes and represented the governing class, the bureaucrats, the functionaries, uh, the middle management, so to speak. Yeah, I think um, the, the spectrum we have is, like you say, Goering and Himmler and, and Hitler himself at the top, like super mega caricature Nazis, like caricatures mega, of themselves. Yeah. Mega Nazis. And then on the bottom you have, you know, the, the just the bottom feeders is the guy digging ditches or like your average uh, uh, German recruit, you know, young German recruit or, or Hitler youth at that time. So that's probably on the other end of the spectrum. Those guys are still Nazis, but they're, they clearly weren't leading the, leading the way. But just members of the Nazi party, do you call them? What's the definition of Nazi? What is a Nazi? Just somebody who joined the Nazi party is a Nazi? Okay, that's a good point. Let me, get, let me, let me throw, throw some numbers out at you, okay? Um, so according to the British historian Frederick Taylor, who specializes in modern German history, who's written about this topic especially, about 8.5 million Germans, or 10% of the population, had been members of the Nazi party, so card-carrying members, 10% of the population. Um, Nazi-related organizations also had huge memberships, such as the German Labor Front, 25 million individuals. Uh, the National Socialist People's Welfare Organization, it's 17 million um, adherents. The League of German Women, Hitler Youth, like you said, Tim. Um, the Doctors League and others. And it was through the party and these organizations that the Nazi state was run, involving as many as 45 million Germans in total. Um, but I guess the, I guess the um, Allied occupational forces had to figure out how to, you know, answer that question that, that you pose. I mean, what, how are we going to define uh, what a Nazi is? Do we take a qualitative approach or a quantitative approach? Um, and the Americans, in fact, developed uh, a list of five levels of political incrimination, uh, ranging from, like, the major offenders, such as Goebbels, Himmler, Heydrich, Hess, Eichmann, and Goring, um, Hitler, you know, blew his head off, so, I mean, I guess he wasn't going to be brought to justice. Um, right down to, um, you know, something, uh, you know, a label such as the followers or, you know, exonerated person. So, like you said, Tim, the, the ditch diggers or the uh, maybe the merely card-holding members. Um, or just the people who had to get membership to be able to continue to exercise their profession. For example, mm. as judges, lawyers, I guess teachers, doctors, you had to join that specific mm. professional Nazi organization to be able to continue uh, your job. Yeah, so yeah. you didn't necessarily have to become a member of the Nazi party, but mm. you had to join that particular association. So yeah. that's why you find so millions and millions and millions mm. of people mm. in these associations. Yeah. So, but does that, is that something that after the war should be punished? I mean... I think it depends on what you did. It, you have to judge everyone based on their actions. Uh, innocent until proven guilty. Um, if someone, if someone just was just merely a member of the Nazi Party, uh, but didn't commit any crimes, I guess it's difficult to convict them, right? Or um, I don't know. What do you think about that? I think that's a key point of today's discussion. You know, you say, well, you have to judge everybody individually, etc. But how do you do that in 1945? You, with millions of German, you bring everybody 
you know, in front of a group of commissioners that check your background, you that's, look for proof. That's what you, the, and that's, you do and, investigations. And that's what I mean, the Americans tried to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, more so than the than the other powers, they had everybody uh, complete a questionnaire, um, and I think they had uh, oh, well, thirteen million questionnaires submitted. They couldn't keep up with it. It was it was, it was a victim of its own success. Um, but what I don't understand about this questionnaire that the Americans required Germans to fill in was that, you know, you had to answer these questions about your own implication in, in, in the Nazi party or in the Nazi uh, hierarchy or in, in, in the atrocities that they committed. So you had to, like, self-report. I mean, would you <laughs> be open in, in an American question? They still ask you today, are you a terrorist when you fly to the U.S.? <laughs> That's true. I, mean, I guess you're going to get a few bozos who, who always uh, answer truthfully. Um, but, yeah, I... Um, yeah, well, for the major offenders, um, they were subject to immediate arrest, uh, death even, imprisonment, um, with or without hard labor. Um, for for the second category of culpability or culpable individuals, they were they were listed as offenders. Um, they were the activists, the militants, the profiteers, incriminated persons. They were also subject to immediate arrest and imprisonment for up to ten years performing uh, reparation or reconstruction work. Um, then there was the lesser offenders, so the, the third category, and they were placed on probation for two to three years um, with, a, with a list of restrictions, but they weren't interred. And then you had the followers, okay? The, they had some possible restrictions on travel imposed, employment, um, their political rights were, were revoked, uh, they, were, they were fined. The followers, the, low, the lowest category of culpable individuals were tried first in that initial euphoria of denazification of the policy and they actually received ironically the, the severest um, penalties and later when denazification it appears lost its vigor and, 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 and lost its um, credibility um, the, the offenders and the, the, the major offenders were, give, were granted amnesties and, and, and bargains were struck with them. So you had this sort of uh, loss of credibility in many Germans' eyes also how, you know, it's like sadly in, in many workplaces or in our own countries today. I mean, it's the little man who gets hit hardest and the, the people at the top who are in the powered, empowered positions, they, they kind of get away, you know. Yeah, the fall guys. Every trial has a fall guy to some extent. What do you think? Do you think those five categories are, are useful to thinking about? Um, well, like you said, uh, the, the culpability of, of Germans. Yeah, the real question is about, about how were these categories set up? You know, as you said, it's self-reporting, not, not many investigations. So uh, most people ended up in category one. And actually, as you said, that those people were maybe stigmatized or punished the most at the beginning, after the war. That was proof for the fact that you were not a Nazi. If they put you in category one, that meant that, okay, they never found anything against you. It was something that you would actually, you know, show okay. you applied for jobs or for... Uh, so if you, like, proof that you had been exonerated... If you were category one, that meant that, you know, you you had not done anything that's okay. reprehensible. Um, it's interesting to, 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 to notice the differences in, in approach by the different Western allies. Um, though all the occupying forces had agreed on the initiative of denazification at, at the Potsdam um, conference, the methods used and the intensity with which they were applied differed between the various American, British, Soviet, and French um, occupation zones. Um, the French uh, attitude is really interesting. 
they were they were the least vigorous for a number of reasons. Um, um, well, they weren't invited to the Potsdam Agreement, so I think they uh, had a vested interest in interest in not obeying American-led initiatives uh, to to the letter or to the full. Um, they didn't use the term denazification. What? They, they, they used the term, uh, what is it in French, épuration, ep, ep, um, purification. Purge. Purge, yeah. Um, they only tried 13 major offenders, uh, even though the French had six times the staff available um, to them for, for the process of denazification than the Americans had, and, and twice as much as the British. But of all the powers, they uh, were the least, uh, least vigorous in, 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 in bringing... In punishing, uh, in punishing Nazis. So it's kind of a reverse of the Treaty of Versailles, right? The French wanted to punish the Germans the most in uh, yeah. 1919. Well, I think they learned their lesson maybe from the Treaty of Versailles. They probably didn't want to um, spoil post-Second World War relations too much. Uh, I guess they depended also on, on a kind of a, on a strong, economically stronger Germany and a, a kind of a... Yeah, I would say it was more of a very pragmatic thing that um, first of all you have to take into account that the French had their own aberration mm. after the war and that one was um, is considered by historians uh, as harsh so they had their own uh, the Vichy you know, uh, exactly from the Vichy regime they were busy with that and then when it came to the German occupation zone their zone it was really about you know that region was rich in coal in uh, mines etc so it was about using you know getting the whole thing economically going and they were more pragmatic about the yeah. about the épuration in Germany but also because they knew from the start that it wouldn't be possible to mm. you know check everyone's background yeah. and really clean up. It's really interesting that you said earlier that uh, I think it was from 1933 that that all lawyers or judges had to uh, join a, an equivalent uh, Nazi organization in order to, to remain in, in, in business and the same was true of teachers and it was interesting uh, the French apparently tried to purge the German education system of uh, I guess Nazi ideologues and uh, they brought in French educators to to train German teachers um, I thought that was, as a teacher myself, I thought, I thought that was quite interesting. Um, there were differences in approach in West and East Germany too. Uh, former Nazi officials quickly realized that they would face fewer obstacles and investigations in the zones controlled by the Western Allies, <laughs> and many saw a chance to defect to the West on the pretext of anti-communism, uh, because in the Soviet zone, um, it was really harsh. I mean, members of the Nazi party and its organizations uh, were arrested and interred. They were sent to camps, uh, which were overseen by the NKVD. Um, in 1948, the camps were placed under the same administration as the Gulag in the Soviet government. And according to official records, about more than 120,000 were interred. And conditions were so terrible uh, that between we don't know the exact number, but some, somewhere between 42,000 and 80,000 prisoners died. That's a lot. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, apparently, I didn't know this uh, until recently, but the Berlin Wall was referred to by the Soviets as the anti-fascist security fence. Oh, really? It's an interesting factoid. Mm -hmm. But how much, um, when you're reading about the Cold War or anything that happened post-World War II, do you try to be as cognizant as possible that you're reading from a Western perspective, Western perspective as a Western person? Do, do you feel like um, often us Westerners are unfair to the Soviet Union or too generous to the West? Hmm. 
That's a bit of a broad question, but I think it's an important one. And it's, it's one that I've discussed with my friends a lot. I get, as an American living in Europe, I get accused often of being too lenient towards the American point of view. I would say I try to be aware, cognizant, like you said, of the fact that, um, yeah, the, that I'm reading from one kind of privileged perspective over another. I try to put myself in the shoes of a, of a Soviet citizen, let's say, not, not necessarily a, a key figure. Um, but at the same time, I think I would share the opinion of a Nazi prisoner of the Soviets that I think life is better in the West, I would say. And, and you only have to scratch the surface of, I mean, all of the incompetent, brutal initiatives um, that were experimented with under Stalin uh, in the name of Stalinism and communism. I mean, you, you, read, about, you read about the gulags, you read about how you know, political enemies were, were purged, uh, liquidated, quote-unquote, um, you know, man-made fa- famines in, in Ukraine. I mean, it was, it was brutal. I mean, for all the, for all the flaws of the, the Western allies, because they're no saints either, um, I think it was the lesser two evils, I don't know, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. not to get sidetracked too much. We'll get back to denazification in a moment, but I will just give a brief anecdote. Um, when I went to Berlin, I went to the East Germany Museum. Have you guys been to the East Germany Museum in Berlin? Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, uh, one of the pieces of the museum is how um, often East, East German citizens had fair salaries. Actually, um, not a lot of people were like uh, terribly poor, at least in terms of uh, monetary value, um, fiscal well-being. But often they weren't able to spend their money uh, because there just wasn't a lot to buy. There wasn't a lot left to buy in the grocery stores. The grocery stores were quite empty um, or, you know, electronic stores or whatever, uh, the boutiques. Um, and when I got back to France, I recounted this anecdote to, to one of my friends here in France. And she was not happy about that. She said, no, this is just Western propaganda. That's totally untrue, blah, blah, blah. So this is just one of the things, um, one of the, the sentiments I felt as a Westerner in, in Europe. I, I do think I do think that uh, Westerners... Um, we tend to, I wouldn't say forget or neglect, we just were ignorant of the, the, the Soviet role in World War II. That's something that I, I, I kind of, sometimes I, I try to take the, the Soviet perspective and defend the Soviet. Um, they lost 13% of their entire population in World War II, civilian and, and, non, and, and non-civilian. 20 million soldiers. That, that's crazy. I mean, yes. 13% of your entire population, you know, decimated by a war. I mean, they carried, they carried that war, you know. Yeah, and there is the, the revisionist history point of view that maybe, in some sense, uh, Hitler did defeat Stalin. You know, the Operation Barbarossa did so much damage to the USSR that it actually never fully recovered. Of course, a very deba- debatable point, but it is uh, yeah. a point made by, sometimes by historians. We glorify the, the D-Day landings and Operation Overlord. At the same time, on the Eastern Front, there were three enormous maneuvers being uh, deployed against the, the German army on, on the Eastern Front that just dwarf um, Operation Overlord, really. And uh, what was the name of that um, Soviet uh, commander, uh, Zhukov? Oh, yeah, Georgi Zhukov. Zhukov or Zhukov? I, I yeah, maybe, I don't know. My Russian's not good. Vera, you speak any Russian? No, I don't, sorry. <laughs> she only speaks like seven languages, but not Russian. Oh, that's not true. But according, according, to, according to, I think, historical, I believe it's the, the consensus, um, he was the most instrumental military leader in World War II of all, of all the Allies, you know? Yet we, we hear about Montgomery, we hear about Patton, we hear about uh, Bradley, you know. Although Bradley has a, has a pretty solid reputation, too. 
Yeah, yeah. I think in any ideal history podcast about World War II, it would be nice to have a German and a Russian and a Brit here, but we'll <laughs> we'll go with uh, what we have today. Sorry, guys. Sorry, you Germans and Russians, if you're super offended right now. But I, we'll mean, I think we'd get 10 minutes into conversation, then it would be an MMA fight. But <laughs> <laughs> That would be cool, too. <laughs> um, just a last word about the, the different zones and their methods. The, the British... Um, the, the British focus only on the most dangerous uh, Nazis, former Nazis, I don't know how you would describe them at this stage after their defeat, but Britain only focused on the most dangerous ones to, to security, um, and they weren't as bothered as the Americans of uh, kind of purging, purging all German society. Um, however, they were the least, they were the most reluctant, I should say, to hand control of denazification over to the Germans eventually. Um, they didn't trust them. Uh, the Americans were the most active um, in comparison. But they all handed it over to the Germans yeah, uh, yeah, after exactly. a few months. So. Yeah, maybe, maybe we should talk uh, about some of the uh, you know, inconsistencies or you know, some of the factors that led to a, a relaxation of the, of the policy. Because this is interesting. I mean, you, you talked earlier, Tim, about the importance of uh, you know, pragmatics, you know, that uh, pragmatically the Americans... Um, had a vested interest in re in recruiting Nazi Nazi scientists, leading Nazi scientists. Um, I mean, so there were a lot of uh, practical considerations that that sort of uh, led to uh, to many inconsistencies and, and made the policy unfair. Um, they were impractical. I mean, even Eisenhower estimated that the process would take 50 years to complete, um, according to the task that the Americans had set out for themselves. Um, uh, in, the, in the Morgenthau plan, um, it was recommended that the Allies create a post-war Germany with all its industrial capacity destroyed. However, that plan was soon abandoned as unrealistic and uh, because it was liable to give rise to German anger and aggressiveness. So, like you said earlier, I mean, I guess they had learned some lessons from, from Versailles. What do you think? Do you, that, that, that's kind of interesting. Do you, do, you, do you think, finally, the Allies learned a few lessons from 1919? When it comes to the, the lessons learned from World War I, I think, of course, uh, there was the idea to not do the, make the same mistake again, etc. But most of all, the, the, the geopolitical context had completely changed, and there was a serious communist, or what was perceived as a communist threat, in the sense that just the USSR had become so powerful, because all these territories uh, in the East were now more or less uh, under, under their control. So that was... Uh, that, of course, forced Western European states to think the situation differently. And, mm. Um, mm. And, and they worried a lot about Western Germany falling also into the under, under USSR control. And yeah. that would have been a problem. Yeah, it was very important uh, to, I suppose, foster German goodwill, uh, to lessen the appeal of communism at this time. To, um, you know, pressure also came from the need to find Germans to run their own country. I mean, you mentioned that uh, a lot of the should I say ruling classes? It's not ruling classes. Ruling professions like the education system, the legal system. They were they were filled with uh, individuals affiliated, at least on paper, to, to Nazism. Um, I mean, what do you? How, how do you? How do you build a, a new country or a new administration uh, without the know-how of the individuals who had previously been running the country? Yeah, we call them essential workers right now in, in the days of coronavirus. Yeah, that's right. How do you build a country without essential workers, even if they're Nazis? Apparently, 90% of German lawyers um, had been members of the Nazi party. Um, 
And the British, I suppose, faced with this problem, decided that about half of the German legal civil service could be staffed by, quote-unquote, nominal, nominal Nazis. So, you know, they, 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 it seems that they, they made these concessions, you know, faced by these, you know, pragmatic uh, questions, these questions of practicality. I mean, the Western allies started to make more and more concessions um, to the policy of denazification. Historians have shown that even in the German Ministry of Justice, you have enormous continuities with people who were former members of the Nazi party, etc. So even in the highest top you know, ministries where you'd think, okay, in the, the couple of key ministries, they would really pay attention to this. And even there, you can, you can absolutely find it. And mm. it's, the same, it's the same in Italy. Mm. So Operation Paperclip was a, a secret program by the American Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency where 1,600 German scientists and engineers were uh, escorted to the United States after the war, um, the most prominent of which is uh, Werner von Braun, excuse me for my crappy pronunciation, um, Vera speaks German. Is it Werner von Braun? Is that a better pronunciation? Werner von Braun. Nice. Okay. Uh, sorry, I'm going to call him Werner von Braun because that's how he's known in the States. <laughs> my uh, my apologies. <laughs> um, so uh, it was called Operation Paperclip because uh, when the U.S. intelligence agency was recruiting a German scientist to come back to the States, they put a paperclip uh, on their file, uh, on, a, on the file of the scientists and engineers that um, they really wanted to recruit and get back to the States. Um, so these scientists that were recruited were integral uh, to developing NASA technology in the 1950s, 1960s um, in the space race with the USSR. And the USSR actually had their own Operation Paperclip called uh, Operation Osavayakim. Um, again, pronunciation apologies. Uh, but the, the Soviets, um, they wanted to get their own uh, space tech going as well. Um, they were already further along than the Americans, um, but they did use uh, the Middlework Factory, which is um, the Middlework Factory is something I'll say, I'll mention a few times um, it was actually in the, the middle of Germany. Uh, it was a factory where the V-2 rockets were produced um, towards the end of the war um, and very uh, infamously produced under uh, conditions of slave labor. Uh, concentration camp victims were, were essentially forced uh, to produce these rockets underground in, in really gruesome conditions, resulting in the death of 12,000 uh, slave laborers. Um, so Werner, uh, Werner von Braun uh, designed this this V2 rocket that was being uh, made in 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 the middle work uh, towards the end of the war. The the Germans were able to uh, produce and fire off about three thousand rockets uh, before the war ended. Um, these, are the, these are the V2 rockets. These are the V2 rockets. Yeah, they were they were fired uh, into London, uh, but mo also mostly into Antwerp and Liège um, in Belgium. Uh, killing 9,000 total. So I thought that was interesting how the slave labor conditions producing the rocket actually resulted in more death than the rocket impacts themselves. Um, 12,000 dead from, from the production and only 9,000 dead from the impacts. Um, but these rockets, these V2 rockets, were nothing short of astonishing technology at the time. They were supersonic, totally indefensible. Um, the Neither the Allies nor the USSR were were 
able to put up any defense whatsoever towards these rockets. So I was thinking to myself, imagine if these rockets were available at the beginning of the war, how maybe the war could have turned out very differently. There's, there's a really interesting story, just a, a quick aside. Um, I don't know why, but in, in three episodes, I think I've managed to mention the writer Robert Harris three times, but his most recent novel is entitled V2, and it's about the story of how the Brits tried to... Um, tried to overcome the threat posed by the V2 rockets because like you said they um they were they were supersonic so you couldn't respond to them in the air and uh, not at that stage you, you didn't really have the the appropriate you know surface air kind of missile technology and it's a really interesting story apparently um they sent over to i think they were fired from the netherlands weren't they uh they were or, oh i don't know where they were fired I think, from actually. i think they were fired from the netherlands and i think they sent over undercover um a, a an intrepid group of female mathematicians who infiltrated the, the local town um, where the rockets were being fired from. And whenever they had to, they had to establish a position, and whenever the rockets were fired, they very quickly had to work out this really intricate mathematical formula to determine where it was going to land, um, report that back in time for the, uh, for the British authorities to, um, I suppose, respond. Um, and it, it wasn't always successful. They didn't always, I mean, manage to, manage to do this. They did, they, they did so occasionally. But it's a really, really interesting story, actually, um, especially about the role of, like, female scientists, because it's, it's generally a, quite a male-dominated narrative, no? Uh, yeah, World War II. definitely. Um, so that's a, fa- that's a fascinating story. And, of course, you know, you're familiar probably with Thomas Pynchon's novel, Gra- I believe it's Thomas Pynchon, huh? Gravity's Rainbow. Oh, no, I don't know that one. It's, that's all about the V2 rockets as well. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Anyway, anyway, it's a fascinating. It's a fascinating topic. Yeah, absolutely. I think this uh, this rocket was just something that was um, so ahead of its time, really, that the, the Soviets and the Americans wanted to get their hands on them as mm-hmm. soon as possible, and they did. So both the both the Americans and the Soviets uh, produced V two rockets themselves before moving on to better technology, um, better rockets later on. Anyway, uh, so uh, Werner von Braun was the chief architect of the Saturn V rocket which took Americans to the moon between 1969 and 1972. Um, the Saturn V, I will have you know, is the most powerful rocket to date. So it's the most powerful... Um, more, more so than Elon Musk's uh, new one? What, what's the new one called? So that's the thing. Fal- the, the, Falcon, no? Uh, so the Falcon 9 is the one they've been using since, uh, I believe, 2010 or 2011, something like that. But the new one, the Starship, uh, is is more powerful than the Saturn V, but it is yet to fly. Uh, the strong, the most powerful rocket ever to fly with uh, 34.5 million newtons or 7.6 million pounds of thrust. Um, so anyway, going back to Operation Paperclip, um, President Truman was the one that gave it the go-ahead. Uh, he, it's a bit controversial, this one, a bit polemical, this point, because Truman was um, appeared to be hesitant. He actually waited about 16 months uh, before giving Operation Paperclip um, a go, um, well, they kept it. They kept it secret from the American public. Yes, it was secret. They, yes, they, they didn't really know about it uh, to but, the extent of. You know. But later, Truman wrote that he had no regrets about it. Mm. Okay, so. he also dropped the, the atomic bomb. No, he he gave the approval on the atomic. Right. Yeah. He, he was a man who didn't uh, balk from uh, difficult decisions. Yeah, he really did take some. I mean, for better or worse. Roosevelt is probably the more famous president of the war, but Truman really made the, some hard choices. The crazy, yeah, the crazy decisions. Um, so anyway, um, Werner von Braun was never tried. Uh, none of the none of the scientists or engineers brought over under Operation Paperclip were ever tried, with the exception of uh, Georg Ricci, um, who was tried but acquitted of concentration cr- concentration camp crimes. 
Um, another doctor in the Wehrmacht, a famous one, Walter Schreiber, uh, who was later linked to human experiments at Ravensbrück, and he was also convicted in a Polish court uh, for gruesome human experiments. Um, so yeah, when I said no one was convicted, I guess what I meant to say was none of these scientists were convicted in uh, American or German courts. Um, but apparently one, uh, one here, Walter Schreiber, was convicted in a Polish uh, court for gruesome human experiments, but uh, he never served time for that conviction, uh, convicted in absentia. He fled to Argentina. Oh, did he? Okay. Mm, I believe so. Um, Werner von Braun, actually, he's portrayed in, a, in that relatively recent uh, television series on Disney plus uh, The Right Stuff. Oh, cool. Uh, based on the Thomas Wolfe uh, novel. It's interesting. This actually is, like you said, this is actually the Operation Paperclip is maybe the most polemical part of today's podcast because it's more recently polemical. When I say polemical, we, we, we mean, an, I suppose we should explain what we mean by polemical. We're called a polemical history podcast, but it was originally a play on the French word polemique, yeah. which, which is used much more often in French than the word polemical is used in English. Yeah. Uh, and polemique, of course, means controversial. So, yeah, so we use polemical um, with a little bit of poetic license, but I suppose... Operation Paperclip is a little more polemical uh, than denazification at this stage because it was only in the late 80s, early 90s that, you know, it, it, it made waves, um, I suppose, in, in, in the popular consciousness. Uh, right. we, we didn't really know about it until the 1990s yep. extensively. Yeah, and it really became popular after uh, Annie, Jacobs, Annie Jacobson's book by the same name, uh, Operation Paperclip. Um, and just to give credit to Annie Jacobson real quick, uh, she... She is quoted as saying, uh, Dr. Theodore Benzinger, um, who was a Nazi scientist, worked very closely with uh, Heinrich Himmler, who was, of course, the head of the SS. Uh, he died in 1999 in the United States, and he, in his obituary in the New York Times, uh, it was not even mentioned that he worked with Himmler or, or was a member of the SS. So that's how much he was sort of lauded uh, in, in the United States as being such a great help uh, against the Soviets in the Cold War. We just sort of uh, forgot about his crimes and, and uh, let him go on that one. Yeah, so at the end of the day, um, uh, the Allies got into bed with the, with the Nazis, so to speak. Absolutely. And that's uh, the point I wanted to discuss later is, um, you know, how much can we blame or how much should we blame? I guess it's not really up to us to blame anyone, but um, how much should we try to understand the point of view of someone trying to win a war versus uh, doing the right thing? Um, which I think is a really deep, controversial sort of... Is it ethics or pragmatism that should win out in any given situation? So. Yeah, I mean, there are different theories of ethics. Uh, and I mean, even dropping the A-bomb, I mean, uh, I mean, are you... I mean, there's a, there's a calculated choice there. I mean, are you, are you being utilitarian and, and saving more lives in the long run than in the short term? I mean, what's right, you know? Yeah. We, we are taught in the U.S. that we could have won the war without dropping the A-bomb. Uh, but that it was um, the better choice to drop it because ultimately it saved more American soldiers' lives. And uh, at the time, that was priority number one, to win the war with the least amount of death on our own side. So eventually, as a result of all of these various pressures, it was decided eventually to involve the Germans in the process and in March of 1946, uh, responsibility for denazification was turned over to the Germans. Um, the aim of denazification uh, from then on became uh, rehabilitation rather than mere retribution. Um, 
I suppose it's important to note that it became increasingly unpopular in West Germany and it was opposed actually by the, by the West German um, president. He was, he was a very interesting man, Konrad uh, Adenauer. His intention was to, to switch government policy, West German government policy, to reparations and compensation for the victims of Nazi rule, um, stating that the main culprits had been prosecuted. I think he wanted to move on. Um, and even Harry S. Truman alluded to this problem, and uh, you know, he said, quote, though all Germans might not be guilty for the war, it would be too difficult to try to single out for better treatment those who had nothing to do with the Nazi regime and its crimes, end quote. So it seems like he wanted that he was indicating that we should like positively reinforce those who were innocent rather than seek to punish all those an impossible task who were who were guilty, um, which as a teacher is interesting because it's, it's sort of a, one of the strategies of classroom management, yeah? positive reinforcement, you know, um, you know, re reward the uh, the good students and uh, you know their example will hopefully inspire the the poor students, poorly behaved students. But they say they they face the same problem as the Allies. It was also for them. It was impossible to check everybody's background, and their priority was to get. Um, their independence back, of course stop the occupation regime, get their soldiers back. This is something that very often people forget, but millions, millions of young German soldiers were still in captivity, either in the USSR, in France, millions of them were in France, the last ones were released in the early 1950s. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, another priority to yeah. start, you know, get the independence, start negotiations to mm. get control back of their of their country. That, that That's actually interesting, The maybe the Empathy, it's something I've never thought about actually before. I mean, how empathetic were the West Germans, so the non-Nazis, let's say, or well, they've, they've moved on as a country from, from Hitler's Nazism. They're trying to, trying to build a democratic state. Yet, like you said, they had thousands of German soldiers interred abroad, uh, 120,000 um, in the Soviet system. I mean, what is your responsibility to your own citizens, to your own people, um, those who were unfortunately, I suppose, you know, captured and are on the opposite side now, and you know, you were maybe privileged and were let go, and you're trying to. Re what's what's your responsibility as a as a democratic German to German army prisoners abroad? I mean, it's it must be a complicated kind of relationship too. Um, yeah, I think it's one that our respective countries have never really had to face, right? So how we we don't have examples of how other countries have done it, um, do we? Do you have any examples? No, like I said, it's it's nothing I've I've really thought about. I'll probably think about that now tonight on my <laughs> you on do my, that on, on my ride home from the studio. You know, ask me again in a week's time. Um, yeah, I mean, like you said, the the, the Germans then themselves had uh, had little reason to um, to continue with the with the process, um, and 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 the policy of denazification really deteriorated. Uh, quickly, I mean, it was accused of whitewashing. They even have a word to describe um, the whitewashing of of the accused, um, and, and I think that word in German is "perselschein." Is that is that the correct pronunciation? It's like "persel" is the detergent to to clean to clean clothing. Persel, it's one of those uh, brands of de detergent, mm -hmm. and there's a German word "perselschein," and apparently. Um, it, it, it was used to describe, uh, you know, the whitewashing. whitewashing, the selling of denazification certificates on the black market, um, and et, et, et cetera, you know. Um, 
well, eventually a lot of bargains were struck and amnesties were granted. Um, uh, many officials were allowed to retake jobs in the civil service, uh, with the exception of major offenders and offenders. Um, get this, right? Several amnesty laws were, were, were also passed, which affected approximately 800,000 people, right? Um, and those pardoned included more than 3,000 functionaries of the SA, the SS, and the Nazi party who participated in dragging victims to jails and camps, and 20,000 other Nazis sentenced for quote-unquote deeds against life, which basically is a euphemism for murder. Right. Um, 800,000 uh, such, such amnesties. Um, so, I mean, many, many people with a former Nazi past ended up again in the political apparatus of, uh, of West Germany. And in 1957, the year my father was born, incidentally, 77% of the German Ministry of Justice senior officials were former Nazi party members. It's like 12 years after the war. Um, yeah. I think it's the word Nazi, right? That's why it's so shocking, is this word Nazi is such a bad word. It's that killer Z in the middle of the word. It's uh, Exactly, know. and it just brands people instantly, uh, putting them on the same level as some of the most horrific uh, war criminals in history. Yeah. Um, even though, you know, maybe some of them deserve that branding and some of them clearly don't. All right, guys, so I, I suppose to wrap up, um, I mean, what do we think then about some of those questions um, that I posed at the beginning of at the beginning of the conversation, uh, how can a society confront its past? How can it come to terms with its past? Uh, how can it develop a peaceful coexistence for all involved? Um, how can it establish democracy? Um, should it be forced upon them from the outside? Uh, does it have to come from within? I don't, what, what are your thoughts after, after hashing out some of these ideas? I think this is the point, unfortunately, where it would have been really nice to have a German uh, on the podcast, especially an older German, just to get their point of view. Um, I'm not German, but I do have two close German friends, and I have to say they've changed my perspective on uh, Germany, specifically Nazi Germany, um, because I think in America we are, maybe it's because America is geographically further away uh, from Europe than the other, or from uh, Germany rather, than the other European countries. Or maybe it's because American propaganda is particularly uh, different from maybe British propaganda or French propaganda or you know uh, Russian propaganda, basically the, the, the other victors of World War II. Um, but they seem to be still, despite the fact that they were born in the 90s, um, they are particularly um, not guilty, but they, they give very little um, margin in terms of letting Nazis off the hook in any way, shape, or form, right? Which is very understandable. Uh, I think when you're growing up in Germany, uh, you're learning about the history of your own country. It's like, you know, not repeating the mistakes of, 1930, of the 1930s and the 1940s is priority number one for your country. And not only not repeating the mistakes, I mean, of course, it's never going to go that far again, but really nipping in the bud uh, sort of mentalities in the general public like anti-Semitism, like fascism, um, and that's why I think Germany has a particularly strong left-wing movement, movement um, especially Berlin, as far as I understand. Um, so I think the, my German friends have done a lot for me to, uh, to kind of help me understand World War II and Nazism from a German perspective. Now, bringing that back to denazification, I think they would, they, I'm guessing they would say that probably a lot of people got off the hook that should have been uh, punished further. And um, of course, you know, this is not only a question of what should have happened 
um, in, in an ideal world, but also what were the resources available at the time. Of course, you have the agendas of the victors of the war um, that are heavily weighing on what happened to Nazis and how they were punished, how far the investigations went. Um, so I think for me, I just have these, I'm seeing two sides of this coin where one side would say um, denazification should have gone a lot further, the purge should have been a lot deeper, and the other side saying, well, yes, maybe there should have been a bit more um, harsher you know, penalties for, for former Nazis. But at the same time, how, how, how much are we going to push Germany down? How much are we going to hold them back from trying to rebuild? Because that's the end. Of, at the end of the day, that's the goal, right? I think everyone wants Germany to, to rebuild itself and reinvent itself and become, um, you know, a, a, a new Germany that can not forget about its past, but not repeat those same mistakes and, um, and, and join the world, you know, as a, uh, as a 21st yeah. modern country. And cooperate and contribute to international life again. Yeah. I have, a, uh, I have a, an anecdote as well from, from, from my life growing up in, growing up in Ireland. Uh, I, at the time that I lived in Ireland before moving abroad, I had a significant number of foreign friends, among them Germans and, and, and Spaniards. And I remember one evening in a pub in Dublin, and at the end of the night, it's not, it's not untypical is it atypical? Anyway, atypical. anyway, it's not, it's not unusual, I should say, for 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 the band or the DJ. It's, it sounds kind of odd having lived away from Ireland for so long, but it's not unusual for the DJ or the the band to play the Irish national anthem at the end of the night, and everyone stands up and 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 and, and is attentive, you know, and uh, it's kind of like a, a unifying moment. It's a bit sad that you know most people are. <laughs> you know, falling on her face drunk, so it's not the most, uh, you know, somber, somber occasion for the national anthem. But I remember it happened, and I had a Spanish friend, Pablo, uh, with me in the bar, and he was shocked and appalled. He thought it was the most bizarre practice. And uh, it was the first time I ever had to kind of step outside my own kind of bubble, Irish bubble, and try to imagine what he was seeing. And it's only after living in, a, in, in, in France for so long uh, that I that I can I start to see it as an unusual kind of um, kind of moment, uh, kind of collective moment because they don't do that here. In fact, they seem to be very, I find, disrespectful um, or skeptical about about uh, you know the national. You know, I remember once being in a pub in Aix en Provence watching the Irish rugby, uh, an Irish French rugby match, and I stood up alone in the bar with my hand on my heart as as they, they sang Aaron Avin, the, the Irish national anthem, you know, and then... Did you feel like a fascist when you did that? No, not at all, but this is, this is my point, so... Um, but the French, to just finish that story, the French uh, just kept on talking and, and talked over their own national anthem, and I thought that was highly disrespectful. And um, I was shocked and, and, and a, bit, a bit stunned by that. But no, but like, so Pablo, my Spanish friend of the time, he thought it was you know, super, I'll use uber, because, given the context of today's conversation, uber nationalistic, you know, and I, from his perspective, uh, I can understand. I mean, when, you're, when your country experiences nationalistic dictatorship under Franco, your relationship to those types of, um, to the ideology of nationalism changes, and, and Germans too, and I, I remember I was walking the Camino de Santiago one year, and uh, on the walk, I was walking with some young Germans, younger than me, and we, we passed another group of German uh, hikers, young, young, young Germans, and they were wearing, you know, uh, thrift store, army surplus um, kind of, you know, rain jackets or, or, or gear with the German flag. Not the Nazi flag, mind you, but the, you know, the 
the German flag, you know, and uh, they were highly critical of, of their fellow Germans for wearing something that was, you know, pseudo-military with the German flag, even though it was, I mean, and, and I was shocked by that attitude, but not surprised, you know, older, wiser, you know, starting to understand. But the Irish experience then, of course, of nationalism is different to the, to the Spanish and the German experience of nationalism. Um, and uh, I would say, I'm, I'm generalizing and I'm speaking for, for, for my compatriots, and perhaps I shouldn't, but I, I would think that uh, many Irish people would be reasonably nationalistic, but I don't think that has a pejorative term for us. Um, in Ireland, we might distinguish between nationalistic and republican. As being a Republican in America may not be a, a terrible thing, but Republicanism in Ireland seems to suggest that you, you uh, by hook or by crook, you believe in a united Ireland and the, the reestablishment of the IRA. Yeah, well, and, and, all, and all of that. And it's true that during the, the Troubles, the euphemistically termed Troubles uh, in Northern Ireland, I mean, the IRA, for example, uh, you know, it, it's claimed that they sort of co-opted the Irish, the Irish flag. So Southern... Irish people or the Republic of Ireland, I mean, they were a little reticent in, in overt displays of the Irish tricolor with, with its kind of associations or connotations of terrorism in the, view, in the, in the eyes of, of, of foreign kind of viewers and things like that. So it's interesting, different countries' relationships to, the, to these issues. It's, and context is very important because when you speak of one thing in one country, it, it means another thing in another country too. And it's interesting that um, from an Irish point of view, you find the French maybe not very patriotic, whereas a German think that you know some French practices are a little bit ridiculous. For example, the typical, I come from a Germanic background, so the French, uh, at, when the French president speaks at the end of the discourse, they always say, vive la République, vive la France. Like That's something that I makes do, us laugh. I, I, do, I do find, it is, it's, it's, yeah, especially when... Uh, I don't know, Mac, Mac, Macron, when Macron pronounces at the end of, a, of one of his discourses, you know, there's, yeah, there's something stagey about it. Um, I, I, I find it similar when they say, God bless America. I was just going to yeah. say, God bless America, yeah. I remember, I remember it really bothered me once watching Hillary Clinton. Um, well, she was, she was making a speech to the, to the Jewish lobby and at the very end of it, God bless Israel, God bless America. But just that overt nationalism kind of bothers me. Yeah, I would find it a little strange. Like... In, in Ireland, for instance, uh, a rite of passage for many students, high school students, is when they, they spend three weeks in the west of Ireland in an Irish-speaking community. We call those communities uh, the Gaeltacht. And uh, you're, you're there ostensibly to immerse yourself in the Irish language and, and improve your, your level of Irish. It's a, it's, a net, it's a compulsory subject in the Irish education system. And, um, but we talk about Americans pledging allegiance to the flag every day at school. Well, in the Gaeltacht, Talks, in my experience with the Gaeltacht, Talks, at least, um, yeah, I mean, we, we stood before the Irish flag and uh, sang or, or, or spoke uh, the national anthem every morning. So it wasn't very different. So I thought it was very interesting as a student that, um, I mean, in, in that context uh, of immersing yourself in the Irish language, it was a very nationalistic in, endeavor. Um, Anyway, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, I think everyone has their limits on how far how how far they're willing to go with their nationalism. I mean, I think even if you ask uh, uh, Germans or Italians, who are for me maybe the least nationalistic Europeans or are among the least national uh, among the least nationalistic Europeans, I think they'll say some things. Um, you know, not not uh, nothing like "God bless Germany" or uh, or or "Vive la République." Nothing along those lines. But I think they, you know, they really do love their country. They want Germany to continue on. Um, they're 
you know, I, I assume they're hopeful about the future of Germany and, and Italy. So I have some Italian friends too who, who would say, for example, having an Italian flag on your balcony is ridiculous, like fascist. You would never do that. Um, whereas in America, it's like, why don't you have a flag on your yeah, front yard? Yeah. Are you and we haven't, you know, we, haven't we, we, we haven't actually mentioned Italy at all until this moment, so we're not going to get into it now. But I mean, that's that's another fascinating context too. Uh, How about Luxembourg? Do, uh, do you see many Luxembourg flags on uh, on and Luxembourgish apartment balconies? No, no not really. <laughs> what, what is what is the Luxembourg uh, feeling towards nationalism? It's not it's not a country that you immediately associate with with anything. Oh God, that sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's okay. Well, you know, Luxembourg has. Uh, you have to take into account that it's a very small country. So, of course, you don't have the same history of domination and empires than you have in France and Britain and the U.S. and other larger countries. So, obviously, no, you don't have. We, we don't think that we're super important. And um, it, it depends on the people. Like in every country, you have some people that are more patriotic than others. But there's no culture of uh, no being very. Uh, nationalist or on a side note how has Luxembourg maintained its sovereignty with France on one side Germany and the other side and with the with you know the the, the Benelux countries well it's it is one of the Benelux countries but it's the Lux and the Bene <laughs> well that's another long story that uh, <laughs> maybe we should have you over that's we're gonna have you over and we're gonna do a, a, a history of Luxembourg yeah okay. I, I don't know if that's the <laughs> a lot of people are going to listen to that. But All right, let's wrap this up, guys. Closing question. Um, is it the case of, this interests me, I'm, I'm very interested in like the, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to imagine, you know, what happened, what, what would happen if, if I had been born at this time and I were um, implicated, uh, how, do, how do I live with that, you know? And who knows to what degree you would be implicated. I mean, I've no, I've no kind of idea, you know, I, I don't imagine that I'm a saint, you know, so you wonder, you never know. Um, is it a case of once a Nazi, always a Nazi? Is membership in the Nazi party something for which one can or should ever be considered rehabilitated? Can the, can the process of personal atonement ever be considered to be complete? Yeah, I can tell you from an American point of view, in general, with few exceptions, Americans would say absolutely once a Nazi, always a Nazi. I think that's how we would believe it. Uh, that's how we would see it. Like, for example, if, if you met uh, some guy who's like, know he's like oh yeah my grandpa was wounded at stalingrad it's like yeah okay then your grandpa was a nazi you know maybe that's unfair they wouldn't they wouldn't differentiate between just a a membership of the wehrmacht and the the i don't think so unfortunately no i mean but i'm talking about your your layman i'm not talking about an american that also had a phd in history would not say that right i'm just talking about americans layperson but doesn't history show exactly the contrary because if you look at these continuities, you see that these people went from being members of Nazi parties to all of a sudden pledging democracy, working for institutions, uh, applying democratic laws, lawyers, all these jurists that went from one system to the other completely smoothly, uh, playing with the new rules. So doesn't that show that um, Absolutely. it wasn't I t- the case? Yeah, I totally agree with you. But to that, they would probably be like, I guess you're a Nazi too then. Do we, do <laughs> okay. we, do we, do we, do we all have a... A sort of in, inchoate Nazi lurking inside us somewhere that's just waiting to be triggered. I think there's some kernel of truth to that. I, I think people are, it, under the right conditions, if your family is threatened, if your country is threatened, you could get really nationalistic and really dirty. You know, mm-hmm. I think people, people will go to great lengths to save their family, for example. That's, I think that's uh, a known fact. Okay. 
Well, guys, Vera, thanks for coming over uh, to the uh, Polem Polemical Brothers studio and, and having this conversation with us. Uh, and taking thanks. It was a lot of fun. Um, it's been enlightening. It's been a really interesting conversation. Yeah. Did we go five minutes without saying the word Nazi this time? We'll have, uh, we'll have Indiana Jones say it <laughs> right about Nazis. I hate these guys. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, if you want to follow us on Instagram or Twitter, our handle is at polemical at polemical cast uh polemical is p-o-l-e-m-i-c-a-l uh, this was episode three episode four will be coming shortly okay thanks again for listening and see you next time mm -hmm.